The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner, and I'm usually joined by my regular co-host Mitchell Winnick, but Mitch is enjoying some time off. But standing in for Mitch is one of our other regular co-hosts, and that would be Professor Michael Cohen. Michael also runs our Crossroads segment international crossroads segment and today michael is joining me to continue a discussion about u.s supreme court cases michael welcome welcome um thank you so much Stephen. it's so good to be with you again and to fill mitch's shoes is never easy but um i'll just try to run my own race with you <laughs> yeah i think i think we're going to get by so Great. michael you've helped us in the past in discussing U.S. Supreme Court cases, and we've done quite a bit of uh, reviews and summaries of the cases, and as we indicated in some of our last shows, there is quite a lineup of U.S. Supreme Court cases uh, now uh, that are really poised to be decided, I think is the right way to say it. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, there's a there's finally a court, right? So, yeah. uh, and I mean, you know, nine justices, so they can decide things, and uh, it's exciting and interesting. And last, uh, last, the last docket for sure in 2016 reflected uh, when they took those cases uh, some knowledge that they were down to eight justices and in a political battle uh, just to fill their their seats, meaning they weren't politically battling, but recognized the Congress was. Well, um, we now have a ninth justice, and we have uh, a full court, uh, and um, there have been some close decisions on the court. Yeah, and you know, Michael, now that we're at full strength, uh, and, and you've been quite helpful in identifying a lot of cases that we want to discuss today that are certainly very, very significant issues, and it's, it's uh, such a robust lineup that it's actually kind of hard to rank them in, in order of importance, uh, but I think that signals just how important uh, all the high court decisions can be. And let's, let's start with, with what you had called the Kennedy Court and share with our listeners a little bit about why we call this the Kennedy Court, because we've got some cases under that category today. Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I call this court the Kennedy Court. I don't know if I'm 
I, I would, I would uh, not imagine I'm alone in that, Stephen, only in the fact that I, I never seem to have something out there where I'm all alone. <laughs> These ideas come from somewhere, but this one isn't rocket science. The, the court ha- has a division right now where there are five Republican appointees and four Democratic appointees. Um, and the four Democratic appointees uh, actually are uh, m- more to the center than I think a, a lot of people realize. In, in, in jurists, they are, I would say, just center-left. Um, Kennedy, a Reagan appointee, is just center-right. Maybe Roberts is a, a little smidge farther to the right than Kennedy. And then we have three folks who are extreme-right and that's Alito, uh, Thomas, and Judge Gorsuch, who has shown to be in that camp. What that means is that uh, Justice Kennedy really is the swing vote. He is the judge that is making the decisions, uh, which turn out to be 5-4. Justice Kennedy, that Reagan appointee, either votes with the center-left or the center-right or the right, And depending on which way he votes, he controls the outcome right now of most close calls on the court. And, you know, Michael, it's uh, I think it's important to note that he uh, was in that role even before uh, the the, well, our our status. Now we've got a full complement. In other words, even when Justice Scalia uh, was still active, uh, Kennedy still enjoyed that role of really being in the swing position. He, he absolutely did. I, I think what was different then, though, than now, Stephen, is that when Justice Scalia was on the court, it, it was always hard to politically pinpoint Justice Scalia. I, I mean, he certainly was a conservative justice, but he was a brilliant justice in his legal use of reason, logic, uh, jurisprudence, and uh, rationality, and he found a very close friend in Justice Ginsburg for all of the same and like reasons. And the two of them really were the influencers on the court, um, uh, especially where they could agree and where they had differences. Those differences became clearer for folks philosophically. Um, I don't know that Kennedy has that role as an influencer. He is a voter. Um, he, he is influential, but uh, that role that Justice Scalia played on the court with Justice Ginsburg in particular was a special role and an important one that hasn't been matched in the human dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. So as we look through these Kennedy court cases, and we're going to call it the Kennedy court list, we're doing that because these cases uh, do highlight uh, Justice Kennedy's swing vote uh proclivities or his position to be in a swing vote sort of uh, position. That's right, Stephen. That's right. So let, let's look at some of these. And, and, I, and I think we can take, I'm just going to pick uh, pick the Ake case. Uh, okay. It's actually Mc, it's McWilliams v. Dunn, and I'm calling it the Ake case because it's the Ake standard uh, relative to uh, mental health and the use of shared experts. Set that one up for us, would you, Michael? Sure. So the AIC standard basically says this, Stephen, which you'll be very familiar with as a, a criminal prosecutor in your own world and practice. 
Um, it's basically this. When mental health is in question, a criminal defendant is entitled to an expert in that area, a mental health expert, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Think classically of somebody claiming an insanity defense in a homicide case. Um, that has, uh, over the years, been extended to uh, the concept of um, m- mental challenge, mental retardation, uh, general intelligence being below levels where a person can formulate the criminal intent. And McWilliams was that type of a case. I think it was a, a 1986 case um, in Alabama um, that was a... Um, uh, criminal uh, homicide case, a death penalty case. And the uh, Alabama court system, under this AKE standard, basically in McWilliams versus Dunn, uh, afforded Dunn, the defendant, a shared expert. In other words, Stephen, the government and the defense would share some uber mental health expert who would then come up with the single but only um, conclusion in the case as to uh, the defendant's mental health. Um, The morning of trial, the prosecution uh, gave the defense, uh, but this is the morning of sentencing, pardon me. um, uh, Dunn had already been convicted. Post-conviction, right. Post-conviction, that's right. So the morning of sentencing, the death penalty phase of the sentencing, the the state government gave... uh, the defense, the expert report on mental health and 1,200 prison records uh, reflecting that. Um, that's literally 1,200 documents the, the morning of the sentencing hearing. Um, and um, Dunn was uh, sentenced to death. So and this and is Michael, I just want to jump yeah. in here. The significance of putting on evidence of mental impairment or mental health deficits is that it could dramatically impact the ultimate sentence. In other words, there's a constitutional issue lurking here big time, right? A- a- absolutely. Um, and and the, you know, the Eighth Amendment uh, requires certain standards in death penalty phases, and that's where, uh, and as does due process under the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, and that's where these requirements come in, like the right to counsel and the right to an insanity expert if you're facing a death, a death penalty. Um, and so this this case came this case this was a close case. This came up to the Supreme Court. There was an awful lot of examination as to this question as whether a shared expert is really you know giving the defendant what they want, which is their own expert. We're in an, an adversary system. Uh, the defendant, um, the defense argued, is entitled to an expert that is going to look at the case from their perspective in that adversarial system. Um, and ultimately, the Supreme Court agreed in a 5-4 decision that was written by Justice Breyer, but Justice Kennedy was the swing vote who departed from his conservative colleagues and joined the liberal side of the court to overrule the death sentence and indicate that the defendant is entitled to their own insanity expert in a death penalty um, decision. And, that, Mike, the, that, reference that, to, yeah. the reference to shared expert. Is that shared with the prosecution? Shared with whom? Yes, pardon me. Yeah, it's a good, good, good question to ask. I think we should lay that out there. Absolutely, uh, shared with the prosecution. That's that's absolutely right. 
So no longer, uh, at least under the Alabama scheme, can the prosecution and the defense share an expert in an insanity um, uh, sentencing or, or with respect to insanity issues. The defense gets their own expert. Um, and that decision was 5-4. Justice Kennedy, as I said, swinging to the, um, the five, uh, creating a majority. Had that decision um, been lacking a, a, a justice or, you know, it could have been 5-3, we don't know. But the uh, point is, ha- had that been a tie uh, under the, the eight-person court, um, that, that uh, case would have stood and the shared expert rule of law would have stood. The four okay, so, vote reversed that case. Got it. Okay. And then I, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to know that when we talk about the AIC standard, that is a case that has uh, been on the books a long time, and it relates to an indigent defendant's right to ancillary services, right, Michael? Because we're talking about putting the defendant in a position where he or she has access to expert services that are obviously very, very vital. It's, it's so well put. You have your lawyer hat on this morning, Stephen. It's so nice to hear. I have to share with you that I'm doing our show for the first time from our um, mutual home here on the Central California coast, and it's brutally early. It's so much easier to do this from Europe or from the East Coast of the United States where the hour is seen and the coffee has flowed. <laughs> so, I like that. Yeah, no, thank you, Michael. I'm at my best in the morning hours, I think. Well, you you are always at your best, but that's absolutely right, Stephen. And 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 that concept stems from the right to counsel, right? An indig- an indigent defendant in a criminal case in America has a right to counsel, and those ancillary services that the AIC standard stands for um, are really about the effective right to that counsel. Yeah. Okay. Good. I just wanted to get that backdrop in there because I think it's a very very significant issue from a, a fairness perspective, and uh, I can say that I think that was a, um, a good, good decision. The idea of a shared expert to me just uh, really, really, um, in my opinion, diminishes a defendant's right to have uh, very, very vital services and effective services. So, it's I a really that- interesting point that you share that. Uh, you know, we both also have a common background in a prosecutor's office, yours being current, but mine more distant. And I, I think that even most prosecutors would say that's 100% right. I'm not sure why this case was a close call. And and there are some cases on the Supreme Court that we talk about occasionally that are close calls. And even after reading the opinions, I have to tell you, I look at it and I'm like, hmm, I'm not really sure why that one was a close call. And they tend to arise in the context of the right to criminal defense, effective defense in, in the criminal context. Yeah, I mean, that's always a vibrant issue, and uh, I think it makes sense that a lot of those right-to-counsel cases do get extra layers of attention, and I think that's uh, a good practice, if you will. We're coming up on a break, Michael, but let's uh, tease this next one, because I want to get into the juror misconduct uh, case, and that's uh, Peña Rodri- or is that Peña Rodriguez? It is. Peña Rodriguez versus Colorado. And uh, that's a case that we can come right back to on the break, Stephen. Let's do that when we come back. We'll talk about juror misconduct. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. And I'm joined today by Professor Michael Cohen. And our discussion is centered on U.S. Supreme Court cases. Don't go away. We'll be right back. (music) 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the law. Our discussion is going to continue on U.S. Supreme Court cases. And if you are listening to our lead-in, we are first going to talk about the Kennedy Court list of cases. And we called it that because of Justice Kennedy's position as really the swing vote. And I'm joined by Professor Michael Cohen. And Michael, let's talk about juror misconduct and the Peña Rodriguez case. All right. So this is a fascinating case, Stephen, that comes out of the state of Colorado. Uh, the, the trial was about a rape accusation and the custodian at a, at a horse barn was the accused. And the, the jury was hung, um, meaning that they couldn't agree, and um, a mistrial was declared. The jurors, uh, many of the jurors, uh, informed defense attorneys after the, uh, the mistrial or the hung jury that 
um, there had been juror misconduct, um, and I, you know, I have to actually go back. I, there may have been a conviction. I don't know. I have to go go look at whether there was a mistrial or a conviction. But either way, the jurors reported to the defense attorneys that there were racist statements made by one of the jurors, basically, who had made very unfavorable statements about, uh, categorically, about Hispanics and their history with um, violence against women in his belief. Um, just, you know, really something categorically insane. Um, and the question here is uh, whether or not you could... Uh, that the court could examine the juror's misconduct. It, generally speaking, the juror the juror room is a black box, a sanctuary. Courts don't invade that province, so that jurors are free to deliberate to their heart's desire and express themselves any way they want. Here, there were statements that um, uh, kind of exhibited an overt racism, and the question became whether the court can invade the province of the jury to examine those questions. Colorado, the Colorado State Court said, uh, nope, you can't. Um, uh, no matter what happens in that jury room, it stays in that jury room, and there's nothing a court can do. Uh, and that's the question that went up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating issue. I, I'm pretty sure this one did result in a conviction, uh, but your reference to the sanctity of the deliberation room and the confines of uh, that setting is really significant, Michael, and I'm glad you raised that point. Uh, it is, as you've indicated, very, very rare for there to be intervention by a judicial officer, a judge, uh, really on any kind of questioning. Uh, however, in a case of juror misconduct, I think it's important to note how this is uh, communicated. How, how do the litigants and the judge learn about it? And it really is a case of a fellow juror reporting the misconduct, isn't it, Michael? It, it is, and in this case, several several jurors reporting the misconduct. Yeah, so at the heart of this matter is, is uh, jurors are absolutely not to be considering facts that are not part of the presentation of the case right. that, they're, that they're sitting in deliberation on. Right, right, and... And that kind of extreme prejudice for that juror, you know, um, that was exhibited uh, showed a, an inability to impartially uh, serve the role as well, which I think offended at least some segment of jurors who reported the misconduct. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, now, or the, the impact of this holding is that uh, it looks like a rule has now been shaped that calls for mandatory examination or the right to examine juror yeah, so misconduct, is that right? right? Right, so this goes up to the Supreme Court, and uh, you know, again, the Colorado uh, State Supreme Court had basically said, uh, nope, no, not invading the province of the jury uh, for any, any misconduct. The Supreme Court has it, although it's a nine-person court, Judge Gorsuch um, did not hear the case. It was not uh, on the court when the case was argued. So he did not participate in the decision. So we are back to an eight-person court. Justice Kennedy swung to the um, liberal side of the court. Uh, I almost hate to, to call it that, but that's kind of uh, the way we break them down nowadays. Um, and, uh, it, it, and turned the decision into a 5-3 decision that reversed the Colorado Supreme Court and came up with a rule, Stephen, that's just this. When 
a juror has made statements that so firmly and openly uh, demonstrate uh, a, a racial bias, the, the court can uh, examine that misconduct. But there have to be overt comments that exhibit that racial bias. It's not another juror's subjective belief that somebody doesn't like the defendant for racial reasons. There have to be real openly sure. racist statements made. Sure. And then part of that examination, Michael, uh, I know from firsthand, if, if in fact it is going to happen, uh, would involve uh, the questioning of other impaneled jurors to that's a, determine right. whether they were affected by it, right? That, that's absolutely right. That, that's, that's absolutely right. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, is a, it is a relatively historic decision in many ways. It's one of those kind of common criminal law cases that makes its way up to the Supreme Court that is just packed with constitutional issues about the right to defend yourselves, which, keep in mind, in, in this nation stemmed from the Constitution's guard against tyranny. The, the British were using their courts to convict American landowners and uh, forfeit the land uh, to the crown uh, during the years preceding the American Revolution. In other words, the courts had become a political instrument in which to seize American colonial lands. So the, the, the sanctity of a jury, the sanctity of a right to defense in American history under the Constitution is a political restraint against tyranny as much as just a right to liberty. And it's always important to see uh, these criminal cases percolate in that historical constitutional context. Yeah, and once again, here's another example of a case that gets high court attention. And in my opinion, in many ways, it has to do with the loss of liberty and the significance of a wrongful conviction. And I think, Michael, we're probably in agreement on that. Uh, it, you see this all the time with Fourth Amendment cases or uh, right to counsel cases. I, I think there is extra layer of scrutiny on cases that actually involve loss of liberty. That, that, that's right. And, and, and you know, you, you've just put it in the most fundamental terms that uh, you know, up until recent years have seemed to me to be just part of the fabric of our nation. But I have come to believe that there's at least 35% of the nation right now that cares not about liberty at all. Um, but put, put all that aside, um, you, you know, if you read the Constitution, it, that's what it's about. It, it's about a structure of government and checks and balances to prevent tyranny in order to preserve liberty. And so these cases that percolate up to the Supreme Court on liberty are extraordinarily important. And look how close they are. Look how close they are. They're, it's just yeah. it's really quite amazing. It is. It is. So let, hey, let's talk about Moore versus Texas. I'm working still on the Kennedy list. And this is the Lenny standard and yeah. the issue of mental retardation. And I think that's a reference to Steinbeck and uh, of mice and men, isn't it? It is, and it's you know it's always so nice to be sitting here in Monterey County, where I was born and raised, and you served many years, Stephen, um, and uh, talk about Steinbeck because until I was went to college, I didn't know that anybody else wrote books, and that's what happens when you grow up in Monterey. You think yeah. 
Beck was the only author. <laughs> me too. It, 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 he was one of the authors that n- never made me run for cliff notes, Michael. That's right. Because, well, certainly, so many of Mice and Men was so short, it would be hard to cliff note it. Right? <laughs> That's but, true. That's uh, so, but we, and, and here we are talking about John Steinbeck, the, the famous Monterey County or Salinas born and, and Pacific Grove lived author. Um, the Lenny standard comes from the book of Mice and Men, and it's basically the character Lenny w- w- was men- mentally retarded in that book, mentally challenged. I'm not sure how to uh, say uh, or talk about that um, that challenge for people in the in the modern world. There are always more palatable ways of saying these things. Uh, either way, L- Lenny did not understand the consequences of his action. Um, and there, it was sort of an intangible way that uh, John Steinbeck had written about it, and that's that's important to the case. Texas has adopted what's called the the, the Lenny standard for mental deficiencies that can be excused and downgrade a person from being sentenced to death in death penalty cases. Um, and that Lenny standard is kind of largely called that because it, it's a combination of of some older scientific general intelligence standards that seemed a little rigid and harsh and desi- you know right around certain numbers of IQ, and also uh, these intangible qualities that uh, Steinbeck brought to life through this c- character Lenny in of Mice and Man and m- Men rather, and so folks have called this Texas standard the Lenny standard. The challenge has been that there are much more modern scientific ways to diagnose and assess that level of general intelligence where somebody is not cognizant of the consequences of their actions, that they lack, lack the cognitive uh, capability to form the mental intent necessary for the particular crime. So again, we're talking about a potential defense, right, Michael? Potential defense, a uh, de- defense to a death penalty case, both in okay. terms of, of doing it and in, in sentencing, Stephen. Okay. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the court, in another uh, decision where Justice Gorsuch could not um, participate because he ha- was not on the bench when the decision came up and was heard, uh, uh, so we are talking about an eight-person court again. Uh, what happened was uh, the defendant Moore, who fit the uh, at least fit the question mark as to whether or not he could form the uh, or had enough general intelligence to form requisite criminal intent in a death penalty case, was denied habeas corpus. It made its way up through the courts, and in a five-three decision, again Kennedy swinging on liberty in a criminal case. So he made it five. He made it five. This case went five to three, and it basically said, "Hey, look." Texas, you can't rely on a Steinbeck novel to decide whether or not somebody has the qualifications to form the requisite mental intent and be put to death or not. You have to apply modern scientific standards to that question. Um, You must rely on current medical standards. Again, why is this a close call? But it is. It was a close enough call where if Kennedy hadn't shifted, the rule of law would be that Texas can rely on John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men to formulate the standards for a departure or not from a death penalty case. Um, This case is going to actually impact 24 sitting death row inmates. There are 24 sitting death row inmates in Texas where uh, this case will impact uh, the standard that was applied to their sentencing or to their criminal conviction. So, Michael, this the impact here is that it has dramatically expanded 
the medical standards and the means by which an accused can reach out to experts in the field so as to offer uh, modern, current developments on the issue of uh, mental state, in That's essence. Right. That's right. It basically says we're in the 21st century and, and you have to apply the, the, the best science you can at the time to determine whether or not somebody had the uh, mental intent necessary um, to be put to death um, rather than uh, a historical a short story from the 1930s. Okay, and, and what the reference to the Lenny standard is that, of course, it got that moniker, that name, but uh, it, it was a long-standing practice in the state of Texas to use certain criteria and the upshot here is that that criteria was much too confined. Is that accurate? Much, much too subjective, much, much too confined, much too unscientific. Okay. And, and to the detriment of the accused must have been the rally cry from the majority. Correct. To, to, to the detriment of, of, of the accused. That the accused is entitled to uh, modern definitions. Okay. Of, Efficiency. All right. So next up is Moore versus Wisconsin, but we're coming up on a break, Michael, and that's going to lead us into a discussion of uh, the taking clause connected to the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I think that's another 5-3. It is. Decision. So it when is. we come back from the break, we'll continue our discussion on U.S. Supreme Court cases. I'm joined today by Professor Michael Cohen. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. 
But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about U.S. Supreme Court cases, and many of these cases have been recently decided, and we talked uh, just a while ago about criminal law cases. We're going to shift the topic now to more of a civil law topic. Michael, tell us a little bit about uh, Merv versus Wisconsin. Um, sure, and, and I'll try to do it in a more top-line way because I know you have some other things you may want to talk about, Stephen. Murr versus Wisconsin is a case that came up to the Supreme Court under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which it, it has a provision in it that says the government can seize land, but it can't do that without paying just compensation to the owner. So the legal question that comes up under the Fifth Amendment often is, uh, uh, number one, whether or not the government has has seized land, has has taken land, such that it triggers the government's obligation to pay the landowner for just compensation. And although that would kind of seem in the ordinary uh, uh, mind to be a fairly easy question, in the legal mind, nothing's ever easy, and, and, and this question isn't either. Because what happens is often governments regulate land use through zoning regulations, etc., and questions arise as to whether or not the government's zoning regulations are takings in some way that require compensation to the owners. Here, Wisconsin declared the St. Croix River uh, Basin to be an environmental sanctuary and began to regulate the development of land along the St. Croix River. And at bottom came up with a rule of zoning that required certain acreage in order to develop the land. The Murrs are actually a, a, a family, and they inherited two plots adjacent to each other on that river basin, and the restrictions allowed them to only develop one house on both plots because of the acreage limitations. That was contrary to their wishes. They, they wanted to develop a full house on one plot and sell the other. They claimed that the regulation, consequently, was a taking of their land, and they wanted just compensation for that. Um, and this case went to a 5-3 decision. Kennedy again swung it. Uh, would have been uh, a 4-4. Four, four. Um, and... Uh, Basically, the decision said that it was not a taking. 
that in fact the um, Wisconsin legislation overall increased the value of the land by uh, having uh, you know developable land at all in an environmental sanctuary, and that the um, the acreage restriction uh, similarly um, increased the va- the value of the land, and that in this circumstance there was no taking requiring just compensation. And the case has been largely hailed as an environmental victory and uh, a victory for for state legislation regulating land use. Okay, good. So we'll we'll stand by and see what what flows out of that case. Uh, Michael, I'm going to keep you in the Badger State because there's another case involving Wisconsin, and you have this one touted as being among the most important decisions of the 21st century, and it's in our lineup uh, really under what's next for 2017, and of course, I'm talking about Gill versus Whitford. Yeah, this is a big case. Wisconsin's a funny state. You know, it's, uh, 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 for, uh, you know like all states, it has uh, so many things that are beautiful about it, and the one... Um, Beautiful thing about Wisconsin is that it's tucked there in in, in the middle of the country, and it, it's a, kind of a political fever bed, and and has been for a long time. I mean, this is the state uh, where Joe McCarthy, you know, came from as a as a senator. So, uh, it, it is one where politics have always been intense and heavy. And this case, Gill versus Whitford, literally goes to the heart of the partisan gerrymandering standard. Gerrymandering is the practice of the state legislature's party who is in control formulating congressional districts because state legislatures formulate the districts where the state elects congressional, federal congressional representatives. So gerrymandering occurs when the, the state is control, state legislature is controlled by one party or the other and they carve out geographic congressional districts in ways that favor their party, favor the votership of their party. Um, and, uh, you know, gerrymandering is always effective short-term, whether, whether it's effective long-term, who knows. The way that modern demographics patterns move and shift, it, it, it's hard to say, but you could study that question forever. Um, for, for years, the basic standard has been, look, you can't do it for certain purposes, but you can do it for partisan purposes. This case, Gill versus Whitford, challenges whether you can gerrymand for partisan purposes. If it were to be struck down, if, if the rule of law comes out that you can't gerrymand for partisan purposes, it would literally affect, I, I, mean, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of congressional districts across the country that have been drawn along those lines and are drawn along those lines every year in some, in some way. Um, so this case is is really important. You know, every vote will actually affect thousands of votes. Yeah, Michael, glad you mentioned the effect on voters because I think at the heart of any of these gerrymandering cases is the stifling effect on voting rights and the complexion of of voters. That's right. And, and what it means in terms of how a state uh, tallies in the end in terms of their voting. Right. Uh, very, very significant. And you've also hit on a point that I think is also front and center in this case, and that is the fine line between partisan and bipartisan, because that's no easy thing to figure out, is it? No, it, it really isn't. And, you know, in, in fact, Arizona, right, has an independent commission 
um, uh, that, that, that handles that. And Cal- California has done the same thing by referendum. Both states have taken uh, district drawing away from the state legislature and put it in the hands of an independent bipartisan commission. Um, and even that process is, is ripe with politics, as you might um, imagine. So, yeah, it's a really big deal. It really matters. You know, if, if, you're, if it has to do with voter dilution, it has to do with the distribution of your vote, it has to do with you know, real, literally whether your vote matters. And um, uh, right now, in the underpinnings of the way um, the vote is being questioned in our, in our country, it's a fascinating case to be percolating up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, so does, do you predict that this could result in there being a real hard and fast rule that almost prohibits gerrymandering? It, you know, here's the fascinating thing about it, Stephen. This, there was a partisan gerrymandering case that came up to the Supreme Court some years back. And Justice Kennedy seemed very against partisan gerrymandering at the time. But he could not get his hand and head around a standard, and, and nor could the, the, the lawyers articulate a standard by which to assess partisan gerrymandering, right? Because it's one thing to rule, lay down a rule of law. It's another thing to apply it. <laughs> and a, a rule of law has to be applicable in some way. Uh, uh, and the court at the time, Justice Kennedy in particular, uh, from his questions, seemed to be struggling with the concept of, you know, well, what rule do you want? What's the test going to be? Uh, and no one had a good answer. This case is that answer. People are coming loaded for bear with about five good answers <laughs> about yeah. how, how to test it. So, the, you know, in the Kennedy court, this, this case is going to matter. And the answers to those questions and whether they pass muster with Justice Kennedy will be the issue. Yeah, there's going to be some very, very serious briefing on this issue, right, Michael? Absolutely. Already is, and will be more. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you something in connection with briefing, Michael, in U.S. Supreme Court cases. Uh, And I was asked this by a couple of friends, actually, and they wondered about the term amicus briefs. Mm -hmm. And amicus briefs are briefs that are authored by parties that are not necessarily named in the litigation, correct? That's right. The, the uh, uh, amicus briefs or amicus briefs, as some people call them, and there's no right or wrong way to pronounce that word, by the way, that is uh, uh, clear from Webster's. I've looked You're it up. You're giving me a pass? No, yeah, I've looked it up myself and, uh, several times, and, and you can pronounce it both ways. Um, um, amicus curiae, it actually means friend of the court, friend of the court. So uh, an amicus brief is a brief that um, uh, someone who is not a party to the litigation files in order to influence the court. And uh, sometimes a decision like this one it may, may have hundreds of, of amicus briefs. It's not a, a guarantee that you're allowed to file it. You have to have permission to file it, but uh, large groups and institutions usually do. Yeah, Michael, how do you get, I always thought there was kind of some lobbying behind some of that. How do you get permission? To yeah, do that. yeah, you have to ask the court. The court invites, you know, the court opens uh, for amicus briefs, and then you have to uh, get get permission to do it. Um, it's usually sort of a clerk-given right, if you will, um, not something that the judges formally meet on um, and and vote out. Um, and uh, there is a lot of uh, lobbying in the sense that there are generally, you know, we've all heard these these terms like think tank. 
and all of these Washington institutions that are policy organizations, et cetera. Well, those organizations are kind of most influential uh, often in their ability to sponsor and uh, submit friend of the court briefs, if sure. you will, in, in this area. This is where a lot of American think tanks put their bang for their buck rather than you know, taking um, or, or trying their, their luck on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think that's right. That's why I mentioned the lobbying factor. I mean, we see that uh, time and time again with in, All, in, in major industries. Yeah, it's always important to remember that the court is a political branch of government. And people say all the time, well, the court's politicized. Yeah, it is. It's a branch of government. It's an article in the Constitution. And, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily try to make political decisions, but it is a political organ of government. And so, of course, there are going to be ways that folks on all sides of important issues attempt to influence those decisions, which are supposed to be based on the rule of law, and most times are, but still come from an equal branch of government that has enormous say over how we live our lives. Yeah. Well, Michael, you know, we're, we're coming <clears throat> toward the end of our segment, Time Flies, when you're having fun talking about the high court decisions. But I wanted to give you a chance to maybe tease a little bit uh, a topic that we're planning on taking on uh, very, very soon. Uh, the artificial intelligence topic? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, this will be fascinating. Thanks, Stephen, for the opportunity to do that. The next Crossroads show that we all do together, we are going to take on the topic of artificial intelligence. Uh, both what it is, at least in terms of the law, and how it stands to impact the law, not just in terms of replacing lawyers. And there, there, there's no doubt that AI will. Uh, I think people generally think of robotics and AI um, as replacing labor jobs, but you know, AI stands to replace and completely displace all types of uh, what I would call college degree jobs um, as well, uh, and graduate degree jobs. But but what does AI do to the rule of law? How do we apply the rule of law when machines, rather than human beings, start making decisions? Oh boy, okay, hang on to your hat. So we're going to be talking about how it impacts many, many uh, issues connected with the law. Absolutely. And I'm, I've got some great criminal law questions teed up for you, Stephen. Oh, that's great, Michael. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be great. So uh, we'll talk about how it impacts the business sector, how it impacts the law, and what adjustments need to be made. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Uh, we're coming up to the end of this segment. I want to thank Professor Michael Cohen for joining me in our discussion on U.S. Supreme Court cases. And, of course, look forward to the discussion of artificial intelligence next on International Crossroads. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. And we thank you, as always, for joining us. And as my regular co-host always says, remember, if you don't know the law... No a lawyer. See you next week.
never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.